Today, Chris St. John interviews Dr. Andrew T. Walker, the Associate Professor of Christian Ethics at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Executive Director of the Carl F. H. Henry Institute for Evangelical Engagement, and the author of several books, including the subject of today's podcast, titled Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. Listen now as they discuss living together in a secular and increasingly pluralistic society, the Christian doctrine of secularism, and how religious liberty is common grace for the common good. Here now is Chris St. John and Dr. Andrew T. Walker. Well, welcome to Engage Arizona, and I'm Chris St. John, Vice President of Advancement, and with me today is Dr. Andrew T. Walker. He's the Associate Professor of Christian Ethics at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He's also the Executive Director of the Carl F.H. Henry Institute for Evangelical Engagement, rather, and the author of several books, including God and the Transgender Debate, What Does the Bible Actually Say About Gender Identity? Uh, We don't have time to get into that book today, but maybe we'll reserve that for another episode. However, today, Dr. Walker, we're going to talk about your book, Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. Welcome, Dr. Walker. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be with you all. And uh, I'm a fan of Cap and Kathy Harrod, so you, you all do good work. Well, thank you. And it's wonderful to have you on. In the book's introduction, you quote David Foster Wallace. You say, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. You know, that pretty much defines pluralism, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly does. And when when I used that kind of language from David Foster Wallace, what I mean by that is, um, as I understand how we've been made as human beings in God's image, uh, every single one of us is creating creating a system of meaning in our life. Uh, and every single person is doing this. It's a question of, where are you ultimately deriving that meaning from? I mean, the the academic phrase that we would use is self-constitution, which is just basically this idea that um, every single person is a thinking, feeling, intuiting, reasoning individual. And a part of what it means to be human is to live according to what you believe is true. Um, Now, I got to be careful here because that sounds easily like relativism. And that's not what I'm trying to argue for in the book. Um, Pluralism is both a a good word and a bad word. Pluralism speaks of kind of religious relativism that, you know, whether you're a Muslim or you're a Jew or you're a Christian, that really all three are saying the same thing. That's not what I'm saying whatsoever. I'm speaking more at a, at a descriptive level, making the, making the observation that whether you are a Muslim, a Jewish individual, an atheist, or a Christian, um, all four of those individuals are creating identities um, in accordance with what they believe to be true. The question then becomes is what are the merits of those truth claims? And that's where you then have to have those questions of apologetics um, and questions of debate about, uh, you know, is, is what one person believes really worth placing all of your trust in? And that's actually what David Foster Wallace is, is getting after in, in that address that I quote him 
in the book. And it's interesting. David Foster Wallace is not a Christian. Right. Um, right. But what he's doing in this famous speech called This is Water, he's basically calling people um, away from kind of just a life of slumber and just kind of passively consuming life and really like becoming aware of what it is that's forming you and and being conscientious of it and asking the question, is what is forming me worth me giving my attention to? And so uh, that's that's where when we get to religious liberty, we have to have this big issue of, of interrogation, like really exposing what it is we believe and asking the question, is the worldview that you're purport, purporting to believe, is it able to sustain basic questions of morality, um, knowledge, ultimate destiny? Where did you come from? Um, and so really quickly, this question of religious liberty gets uh, at the subterranean level about issues of worldview. Hmm. Well, in, in your introduction, you say in a secular and increasingly pluralistic age, we need to allow falsehoods a space to be wrong in hopes that individuals will, quote, come to the knowledge of the say of the truth. You know, that's obviously from First Timothy 2.4. Can you unpack that a little bit as we talk about pluralistic societies that we're in now? Yeah. So, I mean, we have to square with the reality that the, the nation that we have is a pluralistic nation. So we may not like that it's pluralistic, but a pluralistic nation is the nation that we live in. Um, one of the larger theological arguments I make in the book is pluralism is the result of not everything having yet been brought under the reign of Christ. Mm. And so that means pluralism accords with the age that we now currently live in as Christians. So it's a, it's a normative reality. It's a lamentable reality. But in light of the fact that there is moral, religious, and ideological diversity, um, we have to ask the question, what do we do in living in response to that diversity? Do we try to banish all viewpoints that aren't Christian um, to, the, to the margins of society? Do we um, harass it? Do we uh, and, and criminalize it? Uh, because the whole notion of being a Christian means that to be authentically saved means you have to come into a saving awareness of who Christ is on a voluntary basis. I can't, I can't um, baptize someone by proxy. I can't save someone by proxy. Moreover, I can't even, I can't even berate or argue someone into belief. That's something that someone has to internally arrive at, at uh, by virtue of their own convictions and their own conscience. So um, religious liberty is, is a response to the reality of what it means to have authentic faith. Uh, I don't want to be in the business of coercing anyone uh, because I don't want to be coerced. Uh, and moreover, I would say the notion of coerced faith is actually a contradiction in terms. Um, right. To say that right. you have a coerced faith means it's a faith that you aren't sincerely grasping on your own terms that you're being held hostage to a belief system. Well, if you're being held hostage to something, that doesn't mean you actually believe it. It's just more or less something that you are ascribing to uh, for some social benefit uh, mm -hmm. or to appease mm -hmm. someone above you. And that's not a way to live someone's life. Um, it, it's not that I, please hear me. I don't want to defend Islam. I don't want to defend 
any any religion that doesn't ultimately believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Um, but I have to reckon with the reality that those individuals who believe differently than me, um, they want to live honestly with those convictions in the same way that I want to live honestly with my convictions. And religious liberty says, insofar as these viewpoints aren't causing um, you know, an unambiguous harm in society, um, you're going to have the space to live those convictions out. And again, that's not to say um, or, or that we withhold comment on the ethics of various religions and, and the problems of, of some religious ethics. Uh, but it's a question of when we observe difference, what do we do in light of that difference? And then let's debate that difference ultimately. Mm. That's great. I guess, and, and you've sort of answered the question of, to, that I have uh, as a follow-up here, but how does that work itself out as we love our neighbors, but still uphold truth? So you've, you've already touched on this a bit, but I think I have kind of two polar extremes here as I think about the, the abortion issue and somebody that's in the faith as an abolitionist that wants to penalize uh, someone who's, uh, you know, a woman who's had an abortion, but then on the other polar opposite, you know, an atheist. So how, how do we love our neighbors well when, when we look at those two kinds of extremes in such a pluralistic age? Well, I mean, I don't have a, a super clean answer for that, um, other than <laughs> to say that both sides need to be willing to sit down. Both sides need to be willing to have honest, investigative uh interrogative conversations where everyone is putting their beliefs on the table and as a prerequisite to sitting down, it's a, there's a prerequisite commitment to not engaging in intimidation or bullying, but sitting down and actually committing yourself to a reasoned conversation. Um, that doesn't mean that there's going to be any degree of, of agreement necessarily, mm. uh, but there's a pre-commitment to, we're going to sit down and have this conversation. And I think that's actually what liberty and pluralism and religious liberty are there to do. They are there to say, uh, we are actually going to be as raw and honest about our differences and not paper over the differences. Uh, and we're going to figure out ways to come to some form of armistice, if it's even remotely possible. Yeah. Uh, for us to cooperate as as a society, uh, because if we don't agree to reason and rationality and debate, um, how we end up solving cultural conflicts is at the end of a gun barrel. And I don't want to go there. I don't think that's I don't think that's the way to do this. So I think, you know, I, I've had a, a conversation partner um who I've participated in some discussions and dialogues with, who uh, she herself is is a Muslim, and you know one of the things we've committed ourselves to when we have kind of these public dialogues is we don't paper over the differences between Islam and Christianity. Um, we both believe that the other is standing on the cusp of eternal separation based on our professed beliefs. Uh, and so that's 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 a matter of ultimate reality. So if we're able to say, uh, I mean, <laughs> we need to be able to create create environments and foster environments where I can be able to say to someone, I think you're going to hell and your current unbelief. 
but I don't think that I have the ability to punish you. And I don't have the ability to drive you off to the margins of society. So let's take our profound, profound eschatological disagreements and figure out how do we reach a common ground where we can both occupy the same civil society. Mm-hmm. That's so good. And so you, the three components of your book are the kingdom of God, the image of God, and the mission of God. And I've highly highlighted and dog-eared my copy of your book. Uh, and uh, the time on the podcast won't allow us uh, the adequate time and space to cover it, all of it in one sitting. But I wonder if you might just take a few minutes and highlight how each theme informs a proper understanding of religious yeah. uh, liberty today. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole, the whole architecture of the, of the book is I'm kind of putting forth uh, an argument for how to think about religious liberty as Christians, not simply as Americans, not simply as Westerners. Mm-hmm. It's as Christians. And so I, I rely on the categories of the kingdom of God, the image of God and the mission of God. And very briefly, because it has to be brief, because otherwise I'd be in here for three hours, <laughs> is when we think about the kingdom of God, we're asking the question of where does the reign and rule of Jesus Christ um, exist right now? He's, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, but where is that rule manifesting itself? Well, it's manifesting itself in the local assembly we call the church. And when we understand that it's the responsibility of the church to mediate that rule, There's a big implication for that. And the implication is the state has not been given the keys of the kingdom to make proclamations on what what accounts as sincere faith or insincere faith. Hmm. So this this is a question of jurisdiction. It's a question of competency. Do we want our legislators making pronouncements on intricate matters of theology? Um, I do not want Nancy Pelosi anywhere near my Sunday school let alone making any type of statements about catechisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's there's the kingdom aspect. What, what, what does that mean for the rule and reign of Christ now in this age? When we think about the image of God, we're asking the question of, by looking at how scripture d- describes how human beings have been made as reasoning, reasoning beings who have a conscience, who have a will, who desire freedom, who desire to live authentically with our conscience. Uh, how do we then create a system of human rights that says, you know, regardless of if, if you're wrong, I'm still going to recognize that the faculties and, and cognitive abilities that you've been given by God constitute, constitute who you are and how you're grasping who God is. And so because of that reality that you're made in God's image, I'm going to create a legal right based on a natural right for you to be unmolested and undisturbed in terms of how you are understanding your relationship with the divine. Mm. And then when you come to the third category of missiology, uh, you know, you work for uh, CAP. CAP is a Christian-based organization. So, So what you all are trying to do is to bring your Christian convictions into the public square. So the, the ability for you to go from uh, um, conviction to action, it requires the space and the liberty and the ability for you to act on your convictions. And so that means 
at all points of a Christian's interactions uh, with the world around them, there's some unstated commitment to liberty going on. Uh, so if, if you want to stand outside and protest at an abortion clinic, um, that assumes you have the liberty to do so. Um, and so when we take advantage of the freedoms that we have as Christians in America, we're actually helping advance the mission of Christ in this age. Uh, and so we, we want to create systems and cultural systems and political systems that are, that are more open to liberty than, than not. Uh, and so, you know, I, I kind of use as one of my texts, First Timothy 2, pray for those in authority that we might live quiet and godly lives. Well, I, I kind of read into that, that God desires for us to be godly citizens, to pray for wisdom and prudence for our officials, that they may not get too heavy handed and burden the mission of the church so that the church can really just be about the task what the church wants to be about, which is preaching the gospel, making disciples, forming consciences, and through that, working out the implications of our faith in all aspects of society. That's good. I was really struck by the quote uh, here, and I, very relevant to what you just said, but the kingdom of God as the center for religious liberty subordinates the authority of earthly rulers to the reign of Christ. This has immense implications for the power that Christians ascribe to the state. Maybe you could expound on that just a moment. Yeah. I mean, we, we, the state has been authorized uh, in scripture to do very few things. Um, I was actually talking about this in my class today. The state's been authorized to tax you, uh, kill you, and then defend you. <laughs> it's effectively... Yep. What, what, what its rightful jurisdiction is. And when the state um, wants to play the role of the priest, uh, I think the state is getting beyond both its jurisdiction and its competency. That's not to say that there's this, I'm, I'm, I'm not this strict separationist that says religion and politics can have nothing to do with each other. That's not what I believe at all. Right. Uh, I believe that um, government qua government, as far as like the actual institution of government, is meant to be non-confessional, which means it's not to be aligned with a particular religion. That doesn't mean that Christian legislators aren't to be in office and crafting policy on the basis of their God-informed, Christian-formed conscience. But here's, here's a, a really other important conclusion. When Christian legislators are legislating as Christians, it doesn't mean that those Christian legislators should be mandating um, church-state union. It, it, it doesn't mean that they're to be mandating the Sermon on the Mount uh, to be posted in every single school building uh, in, in a given state. It means that um, by virtue of, of my understanding of the natural law and what society needs to obey for it to be a flourishing, stable civil society is that Christians have the ability to step into the office of, of the magistrate and rule justly in accordance with natural law, which is in accordance with, and oh, I mean, let me back up, to rule justly, to make human law that aligns with natural law, that aligns ultimately with eternal law. So mm -hmm. that means I want as many Christian legislators in office that will speak the truth about um, what it means to be made in 
image pertaining to the unborn, um, to speak truth about how men and women are made to relate to one another sexually. Um, and I don't think that that's a violation of separation of church and state to make those arguments. Why is that? Because I believe in natural law, I believe in creation order, and I believe that God has revealed his will for creation in such a way that even non-Christians in principle could actually come to agree with if they were exposed to all of the irrationalities of, of, of false belief. That's so good. And that's such an important distinction. And a couple of things in the, the remaining moments we have together, Dr. Walker, um, it, I'm very interested in what you call um, the Christian doctrine of secularism. And while these yeah. two words are seemingly incongruent, I think this is an important concept for our mission as Christians. I think your thoughts here would be especially helpful for our listeners if you could just unpack that a little bit. Yeah. You know, so secularism is a bad word in Christian circles. It means usually <laughs> anti-Christian or like driving right. God out of the square. What's really fascinating is the idea of secularism actually originates within the Christian tradition from a figure, uh, Augustine. And the secular, what that means is it's, it's originally meant to denote an age, a, a non-eternal age, and, and those institutions that are non-eternal in nature. So right now we are living in a secular age. We're living in an age that is going to come to an end, and someday there's going to be a new age. Um, and so what that means is any any secular institution, meaning that's not going to be in the eternal age, um, it has limited jurisdiction and competence on what it can command from us. Um, I would consider government a secular institution. Again, just to carefully qualify that, I don't mean that government can't have anything to do about God, right? but it's not designed in this age to mediate judgments about who God is in a particular religion. Uh, and so if it's a temporal institution, a temporal institution should be very, very cautious about intermingling in religious affairs is, is effectively what I mean by Christian secularism. Mm, that's good. Um, I wonder if you'd speak a little about uh, religious liberty as a common grace for the common good. I found this particularly helpful to me. We have a new initiative here at Center for Arizona Policy that we're calling the Arizona Capital Project, which in essence, we're pairing shepherds of the church, pastors and, their, and elders with shepherds of the government, elected officials in all three wow. branches of the government. Good. And so it, it's, it kind of lives in that intersection between what has been traditionally those two silos. We're trying to unsilo yeah. those two and get those two talking, to, which can lead to human flourishing and do exactly what you've described in this podcast today. So, you know, a little bit more about that common grace for the common good, if you just talk about that for a minute. Yeah, I mean, I, I think religious liberty is, it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea that God has given us to, to figure out creative prudential ways for us to live at peace with one another while there's tremendous moral, religious, and ideological disagreement. And if societies commit themselves to religious liberty, those societies end up being more broadly freer societies. I mean, one of the things we notice is that if you look at societies and nations that are um, uh, hostile to religious liberty, they're generally hostile uh, to liberty in general, and they're, they're closed societies that are repressive in nature. Um, and so 
this is, I mean, re religious liberty and liberty are in the same ecosystem. Uh, mm -hmm. A nation state or a government that thinks it can mediate God's rule uh, can easily um, quench the liberty of its citizens. And so, you know, this is kind of a Madisonian argument that before we are members in civil society, we are members of a universe ordered by God. And so that relationship is prior to our membership in society. And we want to create nations and governmental systems that recognize that the government is not all that there is about society, that that government is is instituted among men, so to speak, to recognize pre-political realities that have been given to people by their creator. Um, and when that's recognized, the government voluntarily limits itself. Uh, the, 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 the notion in Christian thought of render unto Caesar what is Caesar and what is God is God to God, that is speaking to the reality. And, and, and even historically speaking, historians would say like that's the first time in the world's history where like the notion of the state being limited comes on the, the world stage that Christ says in Matthew 22. So if government, if, if government does not have say over everything, by definition, it's a limited government. The question is, what, what is it limited over? And I, I think it's limited to those areas pertaining to, you know, as I said, taxation, civil defense, and justice systems. Um, when, when you get beyond those, those components, like you start asking perhaps too much of the government in the long run. No, that's so true. And there's so many things that the church not only can do better, but is equipped and called and designed to do better. But and then working in partnership, church and state can do together better and lead to human flourishing. And I guess that's just my contention is, is I see uh, this this concept of common grace for the common good. And I just really appreciated that that part of the book. But Dr. Andrew Walker, thank you a lot for the time together today. The book is uh, Liberty for All, and I feel like this is just a wedding of the appetite. And so for those of you that are listening today, um, the book is on Amazon. I think that's where I got it. But um, uh, Dr. Walker, uh, maybe I, you're doing a lot. I was reading your bio and you're, you're doing a lot of writing, a lot of speaking. Um, you've got the Carl F.H. Henry Institute. And of course, you're an associate professor at, um, at Southern Seminary. So maybe give us a website or two where we can find you and listen to you and keep track of what you're up to. Yeah, I would say, you know, um, I kind of hang out mostly at henryinstitute.org. Um, and then usually I'm most active on Twitter. So I'm just Andrew T. Walk. That's where I'm linking to articles that I write and just kind of offering general commentary on the on the madness of our world. <laughs> the madness of our world. That is, that is absolutely the truth. But well, that's all the time that we have, Dr. Walker. Thank you so much for carving out some time for us today. And, and really just for your, your thoughts that I know are, are led by the Holy Spirit and how you're articulating is just kind of uh, your, your heart for uh, this cultural moment. So God bless you and your work. Thanks, Chris. Good to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for listening to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and give a review on any podcast platform you use. For more information, visit azpolicy.org.